as I say this, I want to couch it in, I want to do better all the time, mm-hmm. right? I try to be a, a good manager. I am also a work in progress, just as everyone else is. But what I lean on is um, transparency, accountability, <laughs> questions. Where do my staff members want to be? What are their dreams for the unit? If we could stay together on this team for five years, what would we want it to look like? It's a shared vision, not just my vision. And I try to I try to build my own internal stakeholders, really, in my unit. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes, and I am so excited for this week's episode. Our guest is someone who has impacted the lives of thousands of individuals and families through her work. She's the director of the Pro Bono and Volunteer Unit at New York Legal Assistance Group, also known as NILAG. She's also an international speaker on domestic violence in Orthodox Jewish communities and works tirelessly combating economic, racial, and social injustice by advocating for people experiencing poverty or in crisis. Simply, she's what a true champion of fair and equal justice looks like. Let's give a warm welcome to an incredible lawyer who leads, and also my very good friend, Amira Samuel. Amira, thank you so much for coming here today. Thank you so much for having me. So Amira, you and I have known each other for a long time, I would say 10 plus years at this point. And we actually met when we were law students at Cardozo Law School in New York City. And as I was researching, you know, and kind of preparing for this interview, I realized I wanted to ask you a question that I actually didn't know myself, and I've known you for quite a long time. Did you come into law school knowing what kind of work you wanted to do? I knew I wanted to do public interest work, and I knew that I wanted to work for women, women's issues, women's empowerment, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And in fact, I thought I would work in uh, the prison system. That's where I saw myself. Interesting. What made you want to work in that initially? I had come from an internship or fellowship at the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in the Office of Strategic Planning. There was a wonderful program through the UC network in in California that allowed for undergraduates to assume those kinds of roles for a summer. And I took a warden's tour of Folsom Prison and it changed my life. And I ended up following that up with some coursework on in the legal studies program at UC Santa Cruz, where I was an undergraduate. And the nexus between mass incarceration and poverty and lack of access to education and domestic violence all sort of came to a head. And I realized that that was a, what I wanted to devote my life to working on. Wonderful. You're originally from California, but you ended up going to Cardozo Law School, which is in New York City. So why the move? I applied to schools in California, and I actually got into a school that was very close to where I was living. And I had planned to just continue to live my life as I had, stay in the same apartment, have all (laughs) the same friendships. One day I walked into my room, and there was a big envelope that said Cardozo School of Law on it, and I didn't even open it. I started crying. I called my mom. I said, I'm moving to New York City. I just was compelled to come. Sure enough, the the letter was, in fact, (laughs) an invitation (laughs) to come to Cardozo Law School. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) And I think it was three months later that I made the move. 
Amazing. So you knew you wanted to empower women. You knew that potentially you were going to work, you know, somehow with women in the prison system. You start going to Cardozo, you move to New York City. So at what point did that change for you? Did that trajectory change? So I was in a unique law school program. I did the May start program, which means your 1L year is for a whole calendar year. It's May to May. I wanted to do that because I was really intimidated by law school. And so when I found out that there was an option of extending the time, even though it meant being a student year round, that it appealed to me a lot. But by the end of the summer, which was an intensive I was like, I, what am I doing? How does contracts and torts have anything to do with what I thought I was going to do with my life? It was all abstracted to me, and I felt very far removed from what I wanted to do. So even though I was a 1L, I got an internship at the Women's Prison Association, and um, I started going to Rikers periodically to help women who are incarcerated there assess the legal status of their children. So do they still have legal rights? Who were the people who were caretaking for the children? What did they need to do to be able to get out and still have legal access to their kids, et cetera. And 100% of the women that I worked with were also survivors of domestic violence. And so though I'm still very compelled by women in prison issues, at the time I realized that domestic violence was really just in my perception, deeply overlooked, misunderstood and area fraught with misogyny in the law. And so I I shifted my focus to domestic violence, hoping to have some sort of an impact there. And I worked in family law and domestic violence for the rest of my time in law school. Incredible. One of the things you said that I thought was really powerful was that you picked up that domestic violence was 100% of these women's experiences. Would I be correct in assuming that this is one of those root causes of why these women ended up in prison to begin with? Sure. So really trying to take take a step back and say, how can I help before they get into the prison system or potentially mitigate the amount of people that go into the prison system? Absolutely. It's also um, the number one reason that women find themselves in homelessness in this country. Now, you go through this program um, and you said that the rest of your time was really focused on domestic violence. Take me through what were those experiences like in, in law school? So my 1L summer, I was at Day One, which was a domestic violence center that catered to youth ages 12 to 22 um, with specialized services and focus and attention that have to do with what it might be like to be a survivor in high school, for instance, or to be a survivor who's living in their parents' home and all the issues that are sort of compounding and different there. And then I, because there's a lot of domestic violence-based relief in family court, I wanted to do more in the world of learning about family law. And so I had an internship that was just really family law and matrimonial law focused. And I ended up doing some coursework in that area as well and ended up summering at the firm that I had spent time with over the school year. And then after law school, I got a fellowship to take to any organization that I wanted. And I chose NILAG uh, because I had a really big crush on the organization, honestly. (laughs) I had gone to numerous trainings at NILAG. I knew about the work. I had seen what the, at the time, it was called the Family Law and Matrimonial and Family Law Unit did. And I was like, I want to do this work. I want to be a part of this team. So I ended up taking my post-grad fellowship there. And then I was awarded a Family Law Fellowship that I took there as well. And at the conclusion of that, I think I volunteered for maybe two months before I was hired. So I want to take a step back because you're this person that is getting into the law, is is starting out and being faced with a lot of these really heavy, scary, emotional cases. And I, 
I just want to understand how did that impact you emotionally? How did you figure out how to how to deal with these cases from an emotional level, a mental level? I'm so glad that you went there right away because <laughs> I think one of the things that's overlooked or misunderstood maybe is how severe the impact can be. I think when I was really young in my practice, I was so compelled and so excited about the work that I was doing and so driven that the trauma to excitement ratio (laughs) was sustainable. I could do it. I could both absorb all of these horrifying facts and I could do the work zealously and feel sensitive to all of these things, but not emotionally burdened by them. There's like a, a fire at the beginning that really was just, I was incredibly driven in the space. And then over time, the more stories I'd heard and the more compounded I was by the emotional impact of severe things that I had heard and horrifying things that I had heard, but also just seeing what justice looked like for so many people through their lens was really disappointing. Like, here we are, we fought so hard and and it still feels like a loss or it doesn't make all of the pain or the fear go away. Or now the case is concluded, but you have a life, you know, you know, you have the next 14 years of co-parenting with this person who really harmed you, mm-hmm. for instance, really t- started to take a toll. I interfered with my sleep. I had a lot of intrusive thoughts about it. And so I, I did, my office was supportive in terms of a lot of vicarious trauma training. There was, there were opportunities to work with colleagues to switch cases. If there was one that was just too much for you for because of one particular fact or another particular fact, or because it kept recurring over and over and over again. I mean, you have a case, it closes and it's open again in a month. That, that was pretty arduous at various intervals. But I also had to shift my focus to a lot of things outside of work, which ended up sustaining me in, in the practice of domestic violence law for a long time. I actually did a 600-hour Pilates training certification program while I was doing this job, just so that I'd have something I had to focus on that wasn't this. It took me out of this world for a while. Yeah. We hear a lot these days about self-care. And I think now more than ever, it's less cliche to talk about mental health, about going to therapy, about you know, having the ability to really be self-aware of how things are impacting us and then how to grow from those things. Um, And it seems like you were doing that and you were really leaning into that. Tell me a little bit about this vicarious trauma training. I've never heard of that before. There's a whole field of study on vicarious trauma that's really fascinating. And though I've been a part of these trainings for a long time and even contributed to leadership in these trainings, I'm by no means the expert. It's an area of psychological research that has to do with people who are in these varieties of roles. So people who uh, are social workers in the area of uh, child abuse or sexual assault or uh, attorneys who are dealing with these sorts of facts all the time, or people who support uh, refugee resettlement, folks who are hearing traumatic stories all the time. Vicarious trauma training talks about what the symptoms of vicarious trauma might be, about what the causes of vicarious trauma might be, about distinguishing that kind of trauma that you really absorb and that starts to interfere with your quality of life and your ability to do your work uh, versus maybe being burnt out. And a lot of legal service organizations not only offer their attorneys vicarious trauma training, but also the pro bono attorneys that they work with so that folks are aware of not only the trauma that they're interfacing with from the client's perspective, but also how that might impact them. Incredible. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about NILAG. Tell me a little bit about what does NILAG do and what is your role today? Because it's not the same as when you first started at NILAG. 
It is not the same as when I first started. So NILAG is a 30-year-old civil legal service organization. It's an extraordinary organization with multiple practice areas and a wide breadth of services offered from financial empowerment to immigration to domestic violence law to a legal health partnership with various hospitals across New York City. We have a mobile legal help center, which pre-COVID was an office on wheels that went from borough to borough to uh, provide legal services to people who are a little bit more remote to our office. We have a tenants' rights unit and a special education unit. We have a Holocaust compensation program. And so there's a a myriad of ways in which NILAG supports New Yorkers experiencing crisis and crisis as it relates to poverty and restabilizing their lives and getting justice so that they can move forward with the dignity, but also every aspect of security in their life that they deserve. I love that word, dignity. Talk to me about that. What does dignity mean to you? I guess as it relates to my role, and I'll just say it's evolved, right? I'm no longer in a client-facing role. I no longer have a caseload of my own. I direct our pro bono and volunteer program. Part of dignity as it relates to my role is ensuring that even those clients who couldn't imagine ever having access to attorneys at some of the big firms that we partner with that have offices in Times Square or Grand Central or, you know, have a have an office supplies closet that looks like a Staples. <laughs> um, that wouldn't dream of having access to, to attorneys who get paid the, the way that they do or have resources that they have are still afforded that access to representation, the quality to, of representation, the weight and respect that they deserve moving forward with these really trying circumstances and facing really scary legal issues in their life. It could be the difference between feeling safe at home and not feeling safe at home, having the benefits that you need to be able to go to the doctor or not having those benefits, having appropriate guardianship papers executed so that your children are cared for. There are so many of these things that just obviously it could impact anyone's life, but if you don't have access to quality legal services or if you don't have money to pay for the legal services that you deserve, knowing that we can give them quality services and give them access to services even when we, we are tapped out, either because it exceeds our, our practice area or our capacity just in terms of numbers is really deeply intertwined with dignity. I love that. Thank you. And so how does a New Yorker find you? Oh, well, in any number of ways. I think most people are currently finding us online, honestly. Although uh, pre-COVID, you know, we had so many different areas of outreach. Our, I referenced legal health. Our medical legal partnership has intake sites at hospitals. We have attorneys at the family justice centers across New York City. We have partnerships with various community-based organizations. And so there's lots of points of access to us just through all of those partnerships. Police departments give out civil legal service uh, information sometimes, and we're listed at many of those areas. We've gotten quite creative in terms of making sure that as many CBOs and also civic standing organizations know as much about us as possible. Nyland does so many different things. I didn't even realize the enormity of how many different types of services are provided to New Yorkers. This is incredible to me. And so how many attorneys are working in-house? And then let's go into how many attorneys are volunteers working through your, your pro bono and volunteer unit. So NILAG is currently an organization of 320 people, I believe, and um, over 200 are attorneys. Our pro bono and volunteer contribution last year was over 2,000 individuals. So they increase our capacity tremendously. Wow. So tell me a little bit about your role. How are you, you know, recruiting people to come and be champions for NILAG? So my role is to recruit 
volunteers and pro bono attorneys and to build programs and innovate programs that allow us to increase our capacity as an organization so that we can serve more clients. I mean, the bottom line is we want to get as many people access to legal services as possible. However, a big part of that is nurturing as many emissaries of our mission in our organization as possible. What I mean by that is we recruit law students. Law students have an interest in learning from our expertise and having our attorneys be their mentors. And so there's a really positive and wonderful relationship there. But it's not just having someone have a successful legal internship and that they learned something and that our organization benefited from having additional staffing. It's having a student in this example come to NILAG and not necessarily know what it might be like to live in the shoes of this client. And I'm not saying that over the course of the summer, they're going to get that. But they have a glimpse into the world. Maybe they're more compassionate about these issues. Maybe they have more of an awareness of how intertwined so many of these issues are. Well, if your housing is insecure, and maybe that interferes with your ability to get to work on time. And if it interferes with your ability to get to work on time, then maybe that interferes with your ability to buy food. And if your food security is limited, maybe that interferes with your ability to appropriately parent. And if that is is being impacted, maybe a school is giving you a hard time rather than a supportive time. <laughs> if there's so many ways in which one legal issue just completely shakes a client and ends up being intertwined with many other legal issues. And a law student becoming aware of that might make them devoted to this kind of work for the rest of their career. Maybe not in that they're doing it full time, but that they want to do pro bono work. Maybe it makes them vote a particular way. Maybe it makes them give a particular way. But my goal is for every single person who interacts with NILAG to leave feeling like they did something really meaningful and that a bridge was built between them and their world and the world of the people who were um, serving. So beautiful. That's true for law students. And it's also true for attorneys in private practice. It's wonderful for them to be able to diversify their work, to get more experience in things that maybe they don't have access to in the day-to-day of their job, but also to use their law degree to change a life, to change a policy. What kind of people and organizations typically volunteer and partner with NILAG to help with NILAG's work? So we have a lot of students who volunteer with us for obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. but we also work with a lot of firms. Last year, we engaged 63 different legal firms to offer pro bono services to our clients, short-term projects like research projects, full-scope clinics where firms were taking on clients for full representation, limited-scope projects where they did a day-long clinic, for instance, just cases that aren't clinic-affiliated that they pick up from our pitch list. There's a a wide breadth of opportunity, and our primary partnerships are with firms and with students, though many of our firms partner with corporate clients for clinics. And so increasingly, we're seeing an interest from corporate social responsibility professionals at various companies. That's cool. So law firms who have corporate clients work together to help with various initiatives that NILAC has. Sure. So we'll say, for instance, we have a naturalization clinic. And rather than having two firm attorneys work with one client, it'll be a firm attorney and one of their corporate clients. And so both get exposure to the work, have an opportunity to help, to work with one another, and also to help us increase our capacity. So on a clinic day, rather than having maybe one or two in-house attorneys do three or four petitions, we can have 10 groups of attorneys work on two petitions each and get 20 cases done in a day. So it really is impactful. When you work with various law firms, how do they work with you? I mean, do they get to pick? Do they get assigned? What does their relationship look like? So we have our tried and true programs that are offered year round, year after year, that we have firm partners who 
come back again and again to engage in those opportunities because they're meaningful, because they know what to do, because we have a long history of successfully working together. These relationships have been nurtured and fostered for a long time, and we continue to enjoy working with one another. We bring new firms into the fold all the time. We reach out and say, hey, want us to come and present at a lunch? Obviously, that's <laughs> not happening the same way anymore. But right. But want to get on a Zoom and we'll have a, a virtual coffee and talk to you about what program offerings we have. And you can let us know if any of these sound like they'd be of interest. Or I like to ask, what is it that you're interested in doing? <laughs> let us know. Maybe it's not something that we have on our radar right now, but we like to be responsive to legal issues as they arise. So if something comes up and I have in the back of my mind, oh, this firm really wanted to work on these sorts of matters. Great. I'm so glad that we took the time to learn that about them Absolutely. because now we can call on them with this emerging legal issue. So there's relationships that have pre-existed me. There are relationships that are new and that I'm fostering. We have a pitch email that we send out every single month that includes all of our offerings, both short-term sort of day clinics and long-term cases. So many times firms will reach out to us because they've received our pitch email. And then there's the way all relationships sort of work, right? Someone knows someone who's at a firm who's really surprised that they haven't heard of us. And one thing leads to another and we're chatting and bringing more people into the fold. But one of the things that I love about my job is that there's room for everyone. There's just no, I can't imagine a moment ever, in which I'll be like, oh, we're, we're good. <laughs> we always want to bring more people into the fold. We always want to bring more firms into the fold. <laughs> and when you work with these firms, what do you think are some of the motivating factors? Like what motivates people to work with Nileg specifically? Well, like I said, we've been around for 30 years. We have this really broad practice area. So if there's any civil legal service issue that you're interested in, we probably have some expertise in-house there. So there's a tremendous opportunity to learn. But I think what makes NILAG a top choice when it comes to pro bono services is that we, we want our clients to have a really, really quality experience, whether they're represented by us, our internal staff, or our external staff. So we take time to launch our pro bono matters appropriately. We make sure everyone has training, not just the substantive training, but they're also given trainings on cultural humility. And they're also giving trainings on working with folks in trauma. Every matter has a mentor and that mentor checks in at the outset of the case and you set a schedule. Let's check in once a week or let's check in once a month. You know who to turn to if you need support, if a novel issue comes up. Um, which isn't to say that NILAG is co-counseling the matter necessarily or micromanaging in any way, but there are supportive resources throughout the entirety of the case so that both the client and the volunteer attorney have a quality experience. And I think that's what makes folks come back again and again to do work with us. Yeah. It, it goes back to that, that concept of dignity, right? Yeah, absolutely. That quality experience of the client and quality experience of the client means making sure that the volunteers are also having a good experience and that everyone's aligned and on the same page and providing whatever amount of support is necessary for that case. Absolutely. That's wonderful. What are some of the, I guess, maybe the obstacles that get in the way of, of recruiting the right partners for the right types of cases? Well, our immediate need, it doesn't always necessarily align with the availability of any given attorney uh, when we when we need them. That can be a, an issue. That's why it's really important to have many, many people to turn to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have those relationships where you can just pick up the phone and say, oh, we got this matter. We are at capacity. Is there anyone who can pick it up? We'll mentor. And folks will say yes or no. If 
the people we turn to for a rapid response aren't available right away, that's when all of the other relationship building and other relationship nurturing really comes into play. I mean, you just got to keep asking over and over and over again until you find a way to place the matter because we want every person to have legal representation. Keep asking. <laughs> I love that. Keep asking. So not everyone feels comfortable to keep asking. Right. Some people feel like uh, nervous that they're being too pushy or so how do you train your team? Let's say, for example, around the idea of keep asking. Hmm. I think you got to get really comfortable with hearing no, mm-hmm. <laughs> not at this time, but really at the root of that, what, what this is all about truly is just having a lot of humility. I mean, you're making an ask. You're making an ask with really compelling facts. (laughs) You're making an ask (laughs) to someone you perceive to have a lot more resources than you do at any given time, but you're making an ask and you want the relationship to be ongoing and you want your next ask to be a yes and not a no. So you have to just be comfortable hearing no and keep trying. I mean, it's not a thick skin thing. It's really just like, this is going to sound not the way I wanted to, but like, I'm thankful that we have these relationships. So I just try to approach it as please and also thank you either way. So that reminds me of something. It's a conversation that you and I had probably a few years ago when we talked about, you know, friendships, relationships, business relationships, personal relationships. And it's something that's always stuck with me that you've said to me. And I don't even know if you, you probably don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm but so curious now. <laughs> but you said to me, I am always grateful for whatever someone can give me. You explained to me that in life, people have a lot going on in their lives and they have varying bandwidths and whatever is given, you're grateful for because the fact that you're even given that time is is a beautiful thing. And I thought Mm -hmm. that was such a profound thing. It actually changed the way I approached relationships moving forward. I don't even know if you know this. I don't think we've ever (laughs) even talked about this before. Um, And I see that kind of being echoed here as well. You know, you have Mm -hmm. these large organizations, these attorneys that have tons of their own caseloads, and you're asking them to take that time. And and many times they do, they give it to you, or they don't give it to you now, but they can give it to you later. This gratitude that you come into these conversations with, I think is really important. Thank you. I'm remembering the conversation you're referencing now. Yeah, it's just, it's really also about managing your own expectations. Like I have to take responsibility for the fact that I'm upset that XYZ firm can't help us right Mm -hmm. now. They might be able to help us another time. I really, I'm not, if I'm too attached to it, it'll interfere with my ability to make the ask again. And I think coming to it from a place of gratitude also translates to the other person that you're asking for, right? The relationship has to be flexible always. And that isn't to say, you know, a volunteer can just come in and do a quarter of a case and we're going to applaud them for (laughs) failing to conclude (laughs) the matter in the way that they should. I mean, everybody here, we hold to the same level level of professionalism (laughs) that they would be in their own office or firm. But it is to say that we never want to make an inappropriate ask. So we ask, and if the time's not right, the time's not right. Or if we ask and the level level of skill isn't right. It isn't right. That's good for us to know. Absolutely. We'll find find another way to work together. Yeah. So talk to me about your team. Hmm. I have a wonderful team. Mm -hmm. We're mighty and tiny. (laughs) I have a pro bono coordinator and I have a volunteer program assistant and the three of us make it work. 
Wow. So there's three of you and you're working with tons of of firms and organizations and attorneys and you're managing all of these opportunities and and helping thousands of people. That's amazing. So how are you supporting your team? How does a leader like you support a team when you're doing so much and making such an impact at the same time? Well, obviously, as I say this, I also want to couch it in, I want to do better all the time, Mm -hmm. right? I don't I try to be a, a good manager. I I am also a work in progress, just as everyone else is. But what I lean on is um, transparency, accountability, <laughs> questions. What I mean by that is I will be honest if I have no idea why something is the way it is or if I am attached to something but then realize there isn't a real reason to be attached to it or if I'm um, exercising control over something that could really belong to all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to have transparency around my own process around that to the extent that I that I have enough awareness to do so. I ask a lot of questions. Is this working, for instance? <laughs> Uh, does this work for you? Are you feeling supported? How else might I support you? What do you need? I like to be forward thinking. I didn't go into my first job or second job or third job thinking this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I've wanted to grow professionally for a long time. Where do my staff members want to be? What are their dreams for the unit? If we could stay together on this team for five years, what would we want it to look like? It's a shared vision, not just my vision. And I try to build my own internal stakeholders really in my unit. Um, and I, I try though, obviously we are talking about business 95% of the time to start our time together with like an actual human check-in. I know that might sound, maybe it sounds obvious or maybe it sounds unnecessary, but it helps me get grounded in, in our meeting to just give a second to say how they are and be a little open about how I am. So that if something is late or something is wrong or something <laughs> surprised us and now is like a, a little fire to burn out so that we have a second to, I guess, acknowledge one another before we get into the meat of it. I love that. And it actually goes back to what you were saying earlier when you were talking about the law students coming in and, and kind of making those connections and creating compassion and how it's intertwined, you know, how someone is feeling and how that might impact their work. You're actually practicing that internally. You're taking a moment, you're talking to each other about what's going on in your lives. You're creating that compassion for each other and that support. I think it's super important and don't think it's unnecessary personally. I think it's, I think it's necessary in Mm -hmm. order to have a very healthy and functioning team. I, I read something interesting recently, and I can't remember where at the moment, so sorry. <laughs> but um, it was about how it's a misnomer to call your work family a family, and that's really unfair because people have tremendous lives outside of the context of their work relationship to you and your accountability to one another in that space. And the reason that I found that article beneficial is because if I want to pretend that my staff doesn't have anything going on at home or that I don't have anything going on at home or in my personal life that could be impacting my work, then how am I ever going to sustain these professional relationships or my my time at work? You know, it's important for me to be able to turn to my staff and say, I am so sorry. We're quarantining this week because daycare is closed and one of the teachers tested positive. And now my two-year-old is going to be at every single one of our meetings. <laughs> you know, it's important for me to be able to have my staff acknowledge my humanity. Absolutely. Uh, and so I and so I try to do the same. I have a life outside of work. <laughs> You're going to make me cry. Just because I, I agree with you full-heartedly and I 
luckily also have, you know, a company that, that recognizes that. And it's really important for organizations to recognize that this is a real thing. And I think more and more with the pandemic, especially people are starting to see that. I remember around this time last year when there was a lot in the paper, mom blogs and stuff about how one of the great things that was going to come out of this pandemic was that no one was ever going to be able to completely silo work and home again. Mm -hmm. And workspaces were going to have to acknowledge what home is like for so many people, so many caretakers. I agree. There's no, you know, work me and and home me, you know, it's just, right. it's just you, right? We're, right. we're, we're one whole person, whether we're at work or at, at home. And yeah, really starting to recognize that and to work within that ideology versus a siloed ideology is I think not only beneficial to the employee, but also beneficial to the organization. Like you said, this helps your team become a better functioning team. So another thing that NILAG does that we haven't talked about is policy change. Can you talk to me a little bit about what what does that look like? Yes. Well, our attorneys are experts in their in their field. Sorry. <laughs> it's good to see your smiling face. <laughs> our attorneys are experts in their fields and they do a lot of testifying uh, or they do testifying where it's appropriate to talk about the impact of policy on the lives of their clients. And there are lobby efforts that NILAG uh, engages in. When I was in the domestic violence law unit, I went to Albany several times to talk to legislators about the um, Trafficking Victims Protection and Justice Act. This was many years ago. It's since become law. But it was such a, an empowering thing to be a part of and such a great thing to be a part of when I was working on so many individual cases because there was a macro lens, obviously, and it wasn't just like the day-to-day fight for an individual um, in a system that felt unfair so often, but it was like this opportunity to engage in large scale change that might impact so many more people. It was strongly encouraged to do more than just your caseload so that you'd mm-hmm. have different ways to use your skills and, and different opportunities to view the work through multiple lenses. And I was so grateful that I did that. It was a really memorable experience for me. What would you say is like one common myth about what you do or what NILAG does or your role that you want to debunk? What are some things that people think when they think about, let's say maybe pro bono services that you think you'd want to debunk, a myth that you kind of constantly encounter? I don't know if I constantly encounter it anymore, but there was a time when I heard very regularly that a a pro bono lawyer, a free lawyer didn't really have time for you and it wasn't the same as hiring a lawyer and you wouldn't get the same access to legal services or quality of legal services unless you were paying, which is just categorically not true. I, I would assert that you get the highest level of legal services from our internal staff. NILAG attorneys are just unparalleled in their dedication to their clients. And I'm so grateful to have gotten the training that I got at NILAG, not only in terms of the practice of law, but also just the caliber of practice, the quality of practice, the professionalism. It was you know, I, I wouldn't have worked any harder for, 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 for different pay. So I think that's something I'm extraordinarily proud of and very aware of in terms of our internal staff. But we, in partnership with all of our pro bonos, offered that, that exact same caliber of legal services. I love that. And it's true. I mean, I used to hear that a lot. I guess maybe I haven't been practicing for a while, but it, it is something I heard a lot when I was practicing. And you're right. It's not true. Right. Um, Something that I've heard also that I would take a moment to debunk is the notion that if you pick up a case, you're you're on your own. So I think some pro bono attorneys or some attorneys who are interested in pro bono work rather might want to pick up a matter, but aren't sure if they'll 
be able to learn everything that they need to learn before their first court appearance or are reluctant because there's going to be motion practice involved that goes beyond the scope of what they've done before. And so I would I would love to debunk the myth that you take a case and you're off in the wind on your own and no one no one is there to ground you, anchor you, support you, or offer you mentorship because that would be a completely failed pro bono model. Um, and it's not what we're about. We want we want everyone to have a really quality experience from the client to the attorney to the mentor. We're all in this together. That goes back to what you were saying earlier about all of the different types of trainings, the mentorship and the support that you provide is really important, again, to the, to the larger picture of, of dignity, right? If we train an, an, a mentor and attorney and they have a positive experience and they want to work again on, on a matter, they can they can increase their practice in this space. Mm-hmm. So they, they start off with a case that's, you know, is medium in terms of its complexity, but then they've taken two or three of those and are really well-versed in this area of law and have this, this growing expertise in this area. And they can maybe mentor other people within their firm or take on more complex matters with NILAG, which is, you know, maybe perhaps of greater interest to them, but such a service to our clients and to our organization. It's, you know, the best case scenario for everyone is for this to work out really well. And that's why we're so invested in it. Yeah. There's this kind of gift that keeps on giving effect. You, totally. I, I, I love that you get this person that works with you and they continue to take on those cases. They develop this experience and expertise, and then they're able to mentor others. That's really incredible. It's a great professional development opportunity. Like aside from the impact that you'll have on the, the life of your client, for instance, it's a great professional development opportunity because you get to appear in court, because you're drafting motions, because maybe you're working on an appeal and because you're learning something new and having to apply it in a way that you don't have to do in your day-to-day practice. So it builds the capital of the firm to have a strong pro bono program. It builds your capital in terms of your professional expertise and your skills. It makes makes the world a better place. And it connects people to one another more. It, it breaks down the sort of otherness that happens when you're from worlds of different resources. It's a tremendous service to our organization. It builds professional networks uh, between attorneys at civil legal service organizations or CBOs and civil legal service organizations and attorneys from the private bar and students. There's endless opportunity. And you're leading a lot of the efforts around this. And I would love to ask you, I mean, just from a personal perspective, you're definitely one of the most, if not the most, self-aware people that I've met, right? You've always been extremely conscious of your own character, your feelings, your motivations. You're also someone with an incredible amount of integrity. And I'm not just saying this. I'm saying this because I know you. I should should be on podcasts more often. (laughs) But you are. And I think there are certain attributes and and skills that are either innate or learned that individuals looking to do what you're doing should either have or, or at least try to learn. What would you say are some kind of attributes or skills or methodologies, things that you've seen in the people that you work with or, you know, that you think would be helpful for people to kind of hone or fine tune in order to follow kind of the same path as you? That is a good question. I mean, I so I, when I was working in the then family law unit, now it's called the domestic violence law unit, I worked in the Orthodox Jewish community. And in my role, I worked with a shelter. I worked with multiple community-based organizations. I worked in the rabbinical courts. I worked in criminal court. 
um, or in the integrated domestic violence part, which is criminal and civil. I was in all of these different spaces all the time to serve one, one client or one case. And I think what I got out of that was curiosity. So I knew how things worked, but I also didn't know always how things work right? I mean, yes, I went to rabbinical court, but I wasn't an expert in Jewish law. I'm not an expert in Jewish law. And there's a lot in that space that wasn't, that was so far beyond me that I had to learn. Same was true for criminal court. I I didn't practice criminal law. I just appeared in the domestic violence part. So if something was happening with the ADA and the defense attorney, and I wasn't privy to it, that was something that I needed to be curious about. All of this is to say that these different partners in the process had expertise that I didn't have and resources that I didn't have and I had to learn. Um, And the way that I learned was by being curious and asking questions. And I don't know if that's a skill to hone or just something to not shy away from, but I remember early in my practice being concerned about not knowing enough. And I think I got to a place like professionally and just in terms of maturing over time where I realized, well, it's the more you know, the less you know, and that's okay. Like the, the more you know, the better questions you have to ask. <laughs> the more you realize there's this whole other untapped area that you didn't even consider, all of these provisions that could be adapted or all of the ways that a thing might work that you haven't entirely considered. So I, I think what has served me, and I'm so grateful to be where I am now, I really love my job, is that I'm, I want to know how to make things work better. I want to know how to make partnerships more long lasting. I want to know how to make it the most rewarding experience possible for the attorneys who are working with us. And I want to know how to make it the most quality experience possible for the person who's experiencing crisis and needs help. And I want to know how to make it feel really good to be a mentor and for all of these to truly be not just mutually beneficial, but to have the desired impact and to get more justice for more more people. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. Thanks. So we're going to like, we're going to wrap up, but what advice would you give to other lawyers who are just looking to follow the same path as you? I would say take as much time as you need to figure out what you really want to do. And I, that's like a really, sounds like a really privileged thing to say. And I'll couch it in, I took some time off and I was really scared to take some time off. And I was so scared to take some time off that I maintained a pro bono caseload while I took time off to do other things just because I wanted to be able to say that I continued to do the work. Mm-hmm. And without that, I don't I don't know that I would have figured out that I wanted to continue to be in this, in this world, but doing something else. I don't know if I would have given myself the opportunity to even think that through. And so if you're looking to transition and you want to do work that's meaningful to you, it's okay that if you think that what you really want to do is work in prisons and you turn out in the world of volunteerism, like it's, it's good to take time to figure it out. And you're so deserving of figuring it out and you can figure it out by immersing yourself in different things so that you can learn what's of interest to you. And you can also figure it out by pressing pause for a little bit. Wise words, especially now there's so many people that are taking their time and they're, they're reassessing what's important and the impact that they want to make through their work. And so I'm really glad that you had that opportunity. I I agree that I think it's a really important thing for everyone to try to do if they can. What does leadership in legal mean to you? Equal parts, steadfast and humble. (laughs) I like that. Beautiful. 
Well, thank you so much, Amira, for joining us today. On behalf of myself, the leaders who are listening, it has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for the great work that you do. If our listeners out there want to connect with you, what is the best way that they can do that? Please email me. I'm at Amira Samuel, S-A-M-U-E-L at nylag.org. There are so many ways to engage. Come volunteer with us. Come learn with us. Offer your expertise, whatever it might be, and we'll collaborate. And we can make New York a more just city for all New Yorkers. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. 